0: Welcome to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. You might know this feeling. That moment when a song hits you emotionally. You might close your eyes and feel it in your chest. The rise of the notes, the path of the melody, the sway of the beat. It's in your head and it's your song now completely subjective what songs work and what don't. For me, one of them is a lesser known track by a Dutch electronic artist called Cecede. Every time I hear it, it packs a punch. I grew up surrounded by music. It's a passion and it was a natural progression to become a radio DJ. Being able to craft hours and hours of music in a playlist was a privilege and there is an art to it. But more and more these days, we are listening to playlists programmed by an algorithm, a machine that has no concept of that feeling. Smooth FM might be light years away from the music I often listen to, but it's extremely popular, warm, feel-good music 24-7. And it's fun, and they rarely get it wrong.
1: When a mistake happens on smooth, it sticks out. It seems so easy when it goes to air. But the attention to detail, I, I describe it like a porcelain vase, that when you, see, when you see that bubble or you feel that bubble, that's the only thing you notice on that porcelain finish.
0: I'm chatting to Peter Clay from Smooth FM in Sydney. Despite their bubble on the porcelain moments, Smooth FM's ratings are consistently excellent. What started out as a side venture for Nova quickly became one of the top stations in Sydney and Melbourne. And they did this by essentially playing a mix of old school and easygoing hits. Michael Bublé, Whitney Houston, you get the picture.
1: We based Smooth... On a feeling rather than an era. So it's not aimed at any one demographic. It's just great music that you can sing along to and just feel good about.
0: Smooth engages with comfort and nostalgia with strange accuracy. Tapping into a feeling is one of the greatest powers of music. It's also one of the most important elements of storytelling. But pinpointing the collective feelings of a mass audience seems intangible. So how did they tap into what people want to listen to so effectively?
1: There is definitely a human element to creating a playlist which is paramount to the success of Smooth and that all has to do with the actual flow of the music as well, like how the music is put together. Data, a lot of businesses are based on data because it's commercial impact. It's a commercial decision. So data is gathered for the best commercial opportunities. But the actual content and, and playlist side, music side, while it can have data behind it, even by feedback through the Contact Us forms, it, the music still goes on gut, so it's not based on data. So Michael, Michael Bublé, for us, he's an incredible artist that didn't test that well at that point, but however, you know, he is basically the, the you know, the, the chairman of this station, like he launched it.
0: For me, and I'm feeling good. Whether Buble is your cup of tea or not, going off gut is risky for a radio station these days. The art of making and playlisting music was once the domain of human intuition, but more and more we are turning to data and machines to help eliminate any possibility of human error. So the question is, what if technology could understand how songs make us feel and predict what we want to listen to with better accuracy than a human? I'm Fenella Kernabone and you're listening to Lumina. This is a podcast for storytellers and creators who are interested in how technology is reshaping the way that we tell and share stories. In this episode, we're wondering if there's a way that data can translate the way we think, our moods, and our emotions into a language that machines understand.
1: A a data driven or a mechanical program couldn't put a playlist together like this because they haven't got the care or the ear to really craft the hour.
0: Maybe not yet, but today I'll be visiting producers Justin Shave and Charlton Hill at their music production house in Sydney. They're interested in how machines could develop that special ear for music that is as good as a human. Here's Charlton. It probably
2: began with um, you telling me, Justin, that you wanted to map your musical brain at one point, so everything that you know about music and the way you create music can a computer actually replicate that?
0: Maybe to the extent that they could program the perfect playlist forever changing radio and music streaming services. Charlton calls it sonic intelligence.
2: Well, sonic intelligence, I guess, is a, is a very uh, umbrella concept of looking at, at sound broadly and, and the, the big data that we can get uh, out of sound.
0: Co-founders Justin and Charlton are passionate about how music can affect our moods and emotions.
2: I'm the head of music and innovation at Uncanny Valley and I've come to be in this role having founded the company after years involving myself in human emotion as a, as a child actor. I began examining the, the field of human emotion and that led me quickly into my interest in music and songwriting and uh, the way that songs could evoke emotion in humans. It's very subjective, and even describing the way you feel as happy
3: or sad, these two very polar things uh, uh, about music. I mean, music makes us feel lots of things. It can make us feel nostalgic. But um, as I like to say, talking about music is like dancing about architecture.
0: Justin's right. Language can be limiting when it comes to explaining how a song makes us feel. The beat, the melody, the rhythm, it all works together to create a pattern that connects with us on an emotional level, on an individual level, and one that we can't always describe, making it pretty challenging to teach to a computer.
2: And the physiological right. response to the repetition of music is, 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 has been proven, that you actually get a hit, you get a dopamine hit when you hear something again and again and again. It's why the song you don't like the first time you hear it played ad nauseum on a radio station eventually go, you know what, I actually kind of like, that. I like song, that song, I don't know why I hate it, but I like it. And yeah, it is a device, I don't think it's used sort of uh, you know gratuitously necessarily, it's just become what? A pop song is, and when people stray from the nature of pop songs, they'll write very avant-garde, non-structured, non-repetitive songs, and people might not like it as much because human storytelling is about repetition and recall and feeling a certain way again and again and again, maybe 20 years later.
0: It's these physiological and sensory nuances that computer programs traditionally couldn't understand. But if Justin and Charlton are able to capture and datafy those nuances, maybe it could. One of the early tools they developed is set up in the studio, and I'm going to have a play with it today. It was invented to gather mood data from audiences, listening to a piece of music. The tool works in real time. They play a song, and depending on how you feel, you click a button. So, elated, lethargic, energised, whatever. It's basically a colour wheel. Then Justin and Charlton manipulate the song while it's playing, tweaking little bits here and there and following how we in the audience change our mood as we go.
2: We we gave everyone in the the room an an opportunity to to let us know what their their emotion was just via a very simple app interface. And then Justin had created a a multidimensional piece of music that could morph between the modes that we we know music uh, is created Upon And uh, taking an average of the room, it could actually play a track real-time, changing about every eight bars, that would express the collective emotion.
0: Okay, okay. okay. Hey, so so Justin, uh, I am in your studio here at Uncanny Valley, and there's a, a lovely strange, colour chart up there. Strange graph.
3: So we've got two axes. We've got a, a valence, which is basically positive feelings or negative feelings, and then we've got an energy axis, which is lots of energy and not much energy and in the middle we're kind of in this sort of neutral spot Um, so I've started up now we should hear I'll move it up towards the uh, positive valence and we'll see what it sounds like a little bit more happy
0: (laughs) yeah it's good it's good okay
3: so you're feeling you know you want to get ready to go out you're feeling elated you're feeling really happy let's let's move it a little bit let's give it more energy okay that sounds like so you're moving it to the right now yep Right, so you can hear it changing now as, as we move around this, uh, this graph.
0: How long does it take for the music to change?
3: Um, well, being music as it is, it needs it needs a little bit of a run-up to, to the actual change. So, um, you know, about eight bars before it actually does something. So the AI has read your Facebook feed and figured <laughs> out that your friends are all decided not to go out suddenly or they or they or went they, out they, without me or they went out without okay. you they're having a great time so you, you're <laughs> feeling depressed and, and lonely so your, your music uh, changes in real time and I'm going to click down near where it says depressed on the chart I'll move it towards the um the tense area of the graph, which is sort of low energy, lowish energy.
0: Yeah, I can. it's funny how you can feel, it's such a simple, subtle thing, but the mood is, is changing dramatically and, and only within, what, eight bars or something like that. This is great. Services like Spotify or Apple Music could use this data to improve their song recommendations.
3: The point of getting machines to choose these things for you is that uh, so we don't have to. Um, choice, is, choice is an interesting concept. Um, if we have too much choice, we, we tend to seize up, I think, as humans. Some people are comforted by the fact that computers can choose things for them to listen to. Some people might be freaked out mm. by it. The, the dream was to have some kind of club that you walk into um, immediately, your musical DNA is known, or your emotional state is picked up by a camera looking at your face. Um, something's reading your meta Facebook feed, finding out whether you've, you know, you're feeling happy or sad, or ways of, of finding out what your emotion is, and then changing music in real time according to according to that.
0: There yeah. needs to be some kind of like in the ether biometric that so can. You know, tell if I'm sweating or nervous yeah. or, you know, hands yeah. or palms are sweaty. Or
3: literally looking at your face oh, to God. find out.
0: <laughs> this is horrifying, but also great. <laughs> Helping music streaming services. I mean, that's useful, sure. But what about for creatives and storytellers? What use does this have for them? Charlton has some idea.
2: Can we teach a computer to actually create music in the way that we do?
0: The way we do. Meaning with feeling. That is, a computer that can interpret human emotions as naturally as we do.
3: What we've been more concerned about is having computers listen to music and then extracting emotional information from that music, all sorts of data from the music, the melodies, the harmonic structures, the the level of energy within the music, the type of emotion that it's going to invoke within a human, and then taking all that data and doing interesting things from it, including generating music itself.
0: The key step is narrowing in on what components of a song are triggering what emotions when we listen. So we know that on a basic level, major chords feel happy and minor chords feel sad, but that doesn't begin to cover what's happening to our brain on music.
2: We've turned immediately to trying to, to map those uh, that that sort of matrix of, of complexity, and um, I guess Justin, it starts with mode analysis. So the use of modes in music is an historical, uh, I guess, um, tool to 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 map the types of emotion that you intend to use. Trying to understand how
3: that emotion, which is already embodied in the music, can be interpreted by machines.
0: Now, one of the reasons why you feel differently when you hear Michael Jackson's "Thriller" Dorian versus Lord's "Royals" Mixolydian is because they're composed in different modes.
3: Aeolian mode is a—it's is a, like the Everyman mode. It's kind of like a minor scale, but there's also major chords in there. So it's a bit of bit of happy, bit of sad, bit of nostalgia, bit of celebration. It could be—it could be anything. As it turns out, a lot of pop music is written in Aeolian mode.
0: But what gets you is the hook.
3: Producers consciously create these little snippets of audio that stick in your brain. Earworms. Um, we like to call them earworms, <laughs> yeah. It used to be a very compositional um, exercise people would sit down write a pop song, let's write a catchy chorus, let's write a catchy hook, let's write a catchy tune. But um, as we progress progressed through the decades, now it's become a little bit more of an arms race in terms of who can come up with the most interesting sound that you're not necessarily able to reproduce just by singing. So you have to play a recording again to listen to it over and over again to get your fix.
0: So making a song that is catchy, that we love seems like a mystical thing but apparently it isn't you can extract the data to trigger the fields capture all the breadth of music creation and human creativity and make something potentially machine made that we love
3: it's a clinical thing to say but the musical experience is a closed universe by that i mean it's uh, there is a finite but very large number of of melodies we could write chord sequences we can put together. If you look at it, it is very quantifiable. And you could argue that the human range of emotion is in fact a closed universe as well.
0: To look at this through a storytelling lens, these algorithms aren't doing anything too differently to how composers have always composed. Yes, they're processing the data and crunching the numbers, but they're also just using the clear rules set out in Western music.
3: I think they did a a recent bit of math to figure out how many songs actually exist or could be written, how many melodies could be actually written. as like 2 times 10 to the power of 19 or
2: something. But the (laughs) point is, it's it's finite. It It is finite. (laughs) And it it sounds terribly unartistic to Mm. actually try and quantify this, but I guess in this age of technology, everything is being quantified. And if it can be quantified and it can be mapped and you can teach a computer to understand the reasoning and logic used to get to a result, then, I'm sorry, but yeah, computers will be able to write music in the way that humans have. I think everyone immediately turns to that kind of, that fearful side of things and says, oh my God, we're going to be useless. <laughs> but we we won't. We will simply acknowledge that the human touch, the, the, the human element is so precious moving forward. It's a very, very unique thing. Uh, however, it doesn't stop the masses appreciating other forms of content and, uh, you know, computer generated art. And one of the interesting things, I guess, with with music is that you could argue that the artists of the future will provide a palette of music for their album, if that concept will still exist, and the computer will real time remix it depending on the time of the day, your mood, or wherever you are. So you could listen to an album for months and months and it will recall every version that it's ever played to you and you'll say, Oh, play me that version that you dropped on that day that I had my birthday and you remix the such and such album. Like that's a great idea. That's a great concept. So there are incredible positives that might come out of this sort of intelligence. Mm. I think if we empower computers to understand emotion and emotions embodied in storytelling, then as computers have used, uh, have, have worked with us in all other manners of life, why can't they be a part of the future of storytelling? It doesn't just have to be an analog pursuit. So with regards to this sort of technology, uh, I guess we're in this wonderful wild west where we're not sure how this will be applied, but we, we love everything about investigating it. And we're convinced that as with other forms of analysis that sound contains so much information that if we can map that, collect it and, and analyse that, then it's got to be helpful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely.
0: So it's possible when I'm 60 or 70 years old, I'll be bopping along in my self-driving car, tuning into a track produced by a computer and absolutely loving it. You have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, Australia's national screen and broadcast school, dedicated to finding, developing, and supporting Australian storytelling talent. Lumina is produced for Afters by AudioCraft with Selena Shannon and Jess O'Callaghan. Ryan Pemberton is our sound engineer, and Kate Montague is the executive producer. My name is Fenella Kernabone. And to hear more of these episodes, hit subscribe in your favourite podcast app. You have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters.